Welcome to the very first episode of Reflections on Now, a new podcast brought to you by City Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. In this episode, we are going to be discussing cultural topics through the gospel lens of love. So there are unprecedented events going on pretty much every day now, and we're going to be tackling these with the perspective of what would Jesus do in this scenario. So these are our reflections on now. My name is Cody Jensen. I am a artist and I'm joined by Matt Nelson, who is the pastor of City Church. Yeah, good to be here. Um, Man, we're going to be tackling some, I think, some relevant topics that uh, a lot of people are asking. And uh, I think these used to come up every now and then, and now it's like uh, three times a day. So (laughs) it's hard to to even cover everything. But uh, You used to be able to pastor a church by looking at what happened during that week. Right. And then, you know, maybe discussing it on the weekend. But now there are seven different days between there with seven different topics. And there's no way that you can lead a body of people wanting to move towards Christ um, by only speaking for an hour a weekend. Absolutely. I I think that uh, we're taking our understanding and mindset as kingdom people, uh, people who are are desiring to bring God's kingdom reality here to earth. And what does it look like for us to flesh that out in everyday life? How does it affect what we think, what we do, politics, how we respond? And those are difficult. That takes a lot of wisdom. That takes not only knowing kind of scripture and the story of God, it takes applying it and then wrestling with it. And that's what we're going to do here is just wrestle with some implications. And we don't expect everybody to to land at the same place. Uh, I, I think that's okay. Um, but what we want to do is do our best to see it through that lens. Yeah. So we are in a very divisive moment in America but I think it is very clear that it has become a divisive moment within the church. Yeah. I mean, in my lifetime, and I think we could go back and see that this has happened, obviously, in history several times. But in my lifetime, uh, even people who consider themselves followers of Jesus taking really polar opposite views on certain on certain uh, ideas, understandings. And, and you know, usually that we found some sort of common ground. And right now, I think there's just there's this unprecedented kind of divide and polarization uh, that we're wrestling through. And I, I think it's revealing some mm-hmm. things. I mm-hmm. mean, I think this is a really revealing time of yeah. where we've kind of built our identity and what our foundation and what's, you know, the center of our worldview. Right. What our attachments are. Absolutely. I mean, I think the the pandemic really showed what our attachments are to. I mean, us as the church, what are the things that we are caring more about by missing out on our Sunday services? Are we caring more about the inability to care for the poor or our inability to collect tithes? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I love the church, obviously. I mean, that's what what I do. I believe it's the hope of the world. I also don't mind criticizing it when necessary. Mm -hmm. And I I think one of the things you're seeing is that they just set out a study this week that like 35% of practicing Christians have not engaged at all in their church Mm -hmm. since the pandemic started. Mm -hmm. That's astronomically high. One out of surprisingly low to me, actually. Is it? <laughs> like 35%. Like if I look at the amount of Christians who blindly stand behind our hateful administration, I mean, the, those people obviously are not representing the core qualities of Jesus. So the likelihood of them being a part of a loving community every week seems pretty low. Yeah. Yeah. I think 50% of millennials and it goes down from there. To me, I mean, it kind of shows us that we've built followers of church brands, rock star pastors, individuals, but we necessarily, not necessarily have 
made followers of Jesus at times. Because without that Sunday component, without that tie, it's almost like I'm lost. Right. I don't know where I'm going. I'm not leaning into biblical community. And so I think that is an indictment on us and maybe how we've uh, established the church and what we've drawn people to. Right. Which is one reason I think we, we want to have this conversation, why we even want to start this podcast is because I believe you can only truly criticize and enact change from the inside out. Ab- absolutely. Yeah. You can't bring transformation on the outside in. Yeah. And I think every organization, even healthy ones, need reform. Mm-hmm. That's part of life. Right. I mean, the Reformation almost 500 years ago, we see the good things that it brought the church out of and into. And I think that there's some similar reform happening right now. Mm-hmm. I think it was already happening. And I would say the pandemic was like gasoline. Mm. It's just accelerant that it now exposed things that were already there, cracks in the surface that you're now being able to see. Like, mm-hmm. oh, obviously that's, mm-hmm. that's there. Right. So within this pouring gasoline um, and, and revealing these things, I think that it is in part revealing the Christian attachment to nationalistic agendas, also the Christian attachment to just cultural norms. I believe that as Christians, we are supposed to be living counterculturally, that as Christians, we cannot be walking in step with the cultural norm because the cultural norm is not the norm of Jesus. So if we are looking and acting and behaving like any political agenda or any societal norm, I think that this reveals that we have been attached to the wrong things. In what ways have you seen that? Yeah. Even just foundationally in our lives, you know, if I I say this all the time, it's become a popular statement just generally, but if your life fits neatly within a political party, it it won't fit within the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. And I, and I think there's people's theology that has become, uh, man, so popular culture, so, uh, politicized that they get to a point where now their belief system and their theology and their life looks nothing like Jesus Mm -hmm. and they don't even realize it. Right. I'm saying things that Jesus would have never done, never said, Mm -hmm. you know, we had this argument yesterday and I know this is a different topic for a different time, but should I wear a freaking mask, Mm -hmm. you know, has become such an issue. And all these people on the right side of things are like, no, it's my right not to. Mm -hmm. I was like, but as a follower of Jesus, which you claim to be, Jesus lays down his rights for his brother and sister. Right. It's not about taking up your rights. It's about what does love look like? So it's amazing how far we can go. And there's some of you that just turned off the podcast right now <laughs> because you refuse to wear a mask. That's cool. But um, and there, it's, it's amazing like mm-hmm. how far some of our understanding can take us from actual, actually what Jesus would do. All the time in scripture, Jesus says, man, if your brother or sister are offended by what you eat, what you wear, what you're doing, then stop doing it. Right. These are ma- issues of uh, non-essential issues. Right. Not the big things, but you're talking about the peripheral issues. And I mean, that's just an example of where sometimes your 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 echo chamber and your mm-hmm. media bias and your political political affiliations can take you to places that are outside the kingdom. Mm-hmm. I think within that we should bring it back to Scripture first. And to me, it seems so clear how hypocritical we are being in not actually following what we are called to do in the words of Jesus. And if we are looking at whether or not we should look at a mask, why are we saying what our personal individual rights are? Um, And like what you're saying, actually loving our neighbor, I would love to read uh, Mark 12, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no greater commandment than this. And if we were to remember one thing that Jesus ever said, it would, if we followed those two tenets, 
then we could have all the answers for how to move forward in an, in a broken and messy world is love God, love your neighbor. Should I wear a mask? Does it love God? Not sure. Not sure if God cares. Does it love my neighbor? Absolutely. Right. So that's the end. There's no more debate. Jesus right. said it. Yeah, I, I think that is, you know, Jesus comes not just to dismantle all the law, but to fulfill it. And he said, love is the fulfillment. So you're focusing on all of these do's and don'ts and should I do this? But love is the ultimate fulfillment of these things. Uh, you know, I'm in Virginia last week. I'm sitting around a table with church planners at a training and there's an African guy there. And he's he kind of makes a, a comment that he's uncomfortable because not very many people in the room are wearing masks. Mm -hmm. What do we do at, at our table? We immediately put on our mask for him. Mm -hmm. Not because it's our right not to. We do it because man, someone in our midst that we love, even if we didn't necessarily uh, right. you know, know him, uh, we want to do it for him. Mm -hmm. Because that's just a, a, res a Jesus response. Right. A kingdom response is, again, not looking first and foremost through my lens of how does it affect me? Mm -hmm. Yeah, how does it affect those around me? You know, if the old lady next to me at the grocery store, if she feels more comfortable because she knows that I'm taking precautions, that's what I'm going to do. Right. Uh, not because of my rights, but because of love. Right. And I think that's a, gr a great place to start if you haven't made it past that. But I also think that's a really shallow reason to do something of just because I, you know, they're uncomfortable. It's that I want to do my due diligence to be the person, the coworker of God to bring the kingdom of God now, which is to sacrifice myself for the betterment of others. And if there is more risk in me not wearing a mask for others, then wear a mask. Like it's, it seems silly to me to even Christians even having the debate. It is. Yeah, it, it is. It, this is how far that we've gone is that we're now debating things that are so, uh, yeah, it seemed to be simple. Yeah. Right. But that's that's kind of where we are right now, because, again, every, everybody's got an issue. And, and that kind of leads us into just, I mean, unprecedented division. And mm -hmm. I, you know, talking to people in our church and, and just around people are worn out. They're weary. Um, and I get it. Uh, this is what you get whenever, you know, we, we live in a world where uh, everybody is outraged all the time about everything. I think you, you, you should be angry about certain things, but when everybody chooses to, to build this whole um, argument around every issue, mm -hmm. eventually it just wears you down to where it's like, I don't know if I care about anything. Right. Because I can't do it all. You can't always say the right thing. You can't do everything you need to do. And I mean, you've, you, you, you turn on the TV, you get on social media, and somebody's gonna be outraged mm -hmm. every moment. Right. I think that one thing that social media and TV has made, well, the way it has contributed to our culture in the most negative sense and affected how we believe ab about ourselves in life is that this life is a zero sum game that in order for me to win, others have to lose, that everything is is put through this lens of, well, I have to do this for me. I have to hold my own because if I don't, they're going to take it from me. Right. And life is not a zero-sum game. If I mean, a zero-sum game, it means that if there's $10 on the table and you take and you take $6, that leaves me with four and I lose. But for you to win, I have to lose is not how life works. Life is, I mean, that goes into basically that's a scarcity mindset. That if you believe that me winning is you losing, that is that means you have a scarcity mindset that there isn't an abundance of life. There isn't a, an abundant world for everybody to go around. And life is a rising tide raises all boats situation 
where if we help out our neighbor, we help out ourselves. But if we're all focusing on helping out ourselves, then everybody else is our enemy who does not believe in the way that we believe. Um, and I think that's what gets into cancel culture is we cancel anybody and everybody who doesn't believe what we believe because them believing the opposite of us means that either we're wrong or they're wrong. If I lose, they, you know, they win, or if they win, you know, I lose. I think I said that the same way both times, but the, uh, uh, I think it really gets into for me, the root of it. I believe that the why of this, of cancel culture and all this division is one, believing that life is a zero sum game Two, in the extreme holding to dualism in it, which is the same thing, just believing that there's right, there is wrong, that there is, there is evil and there is holy, there is good and there is no in between. And I want to read a, a quote by Richard Rohr on dualism. He says, it is hardly an exaggeration to say that us versus them seeing and dualistic thinking that results is the foundation of almost all discontent and violence in the world. To be forced to choose between two presented options is to never see with depth, with subtlety, or with compassion. To see with depth and subtlety and compassion is what Jesus calls us to do. And if we are constantly looking out for who our enemy is instead of who our neighbor is, which is everyone, when we're not looking out for fellow humans and looking out for ourselves, then we're automatically always categorizing people into tribes. Right. Yeah. And this is what happens too when you when when everything's depersonalized, whenever there's no more dialogue, there's no more face-to-face interaction, all of the forums for this are just public blanket statements. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't have a face, it doesn't have a name, it doesn't have a story. And so it's okay because I don't ever see the repercussions in someone's life, you know, and I, and I think that's, that's part of this. Part of it too, as you, as you mentioned, we, we struggle to hold things in tension. Mm-hmm. It's amazing because Jesus grew up in this first century of Jewish thought where you wrestled, where you debated, where that was a part of life. You didn't just take something because someone said it, you, you, you flesh it out, you work through it. And man, have we lost that ability. Completely. Uh, yeah. And so we don't, we don't have forums for that. We don't have safe places for that. We try to do that on social media and it just, right. Yeah. I mean, you, you, everybody knows what happens there. Right. And so, you know, we've lost that ability to hold certain things in tension. So now I'll listen to you up to the point where you say something that I disagree with. And instead of being able to believe in or uh, affirm anything you've said, now I remove, remove you altogether. Right. And I was just say everybody's got their hot topics. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll be talking to someone at church, and all of a sudden, politics, you know, Second Amendment rights, um, pro-choice, pro-life, um, you know, my ability to wear a mask or not. Something like you value that to the point where then, when that comes up, that becomes now you see everything through that lens. Mm-hmm. That I mean, everything right. goes back to that. Right. Well, I don't know if I can believe anything because of what you believe about or you say about this or, you know, you a good example of that is the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm-hmm. And I know that's maybe another topic for another time, but I don't agree every, with every tenet of what the actual organization says. But I believe in the Black Lives Matter movement right. and what it represents. Right. Do I have to throw out the movement altogether because I disagree with some of their tenets? No. Right. If, if you had to, if we had to throw out everything that we disagree with, then you have to throw out yourself and everybody else because every single person is both evil and good. That is human nature. It is not human nature to be holy or we would not need Jesus. Yeah. And I think we're now what we're doing is we're seeking out the voices, the social media, the echo chambers that we know are just going to justify 
right our our preconceived views. Yeah. you mentioned earlier social media having these debates and i think that we have to recognize that as christians we have to engage in the world differently than everybody else just because social media is the the thing that everybody spends four to nine hours a day on doesn't mean that as christians we also should spend that much time on it because obviously you, social media yeah, you has can't. you can't you, <laughs> you just can't, can't do you it can't do it because a a life lived on social media is a life lacking of contemplation because you cannot sit in contemplation if you are constantly engaging and when you're constantly engaging in that you there's no room for nuance right yeah, that's that's when I meet people right now that are just weary and worn down and tired. I can tell their engagement. It's it's too much. Mm-hmm. Like you just physically and mentally and emotionally cannot carry everything that's happening every moment and and the division. Which I think you know, since this is a a gospel perspective, leads us to even the life of Jesus. If you if you watch how he lived and what he what he did, even, Jesus moved towards oppression. He moved towards injustice but he could not die on every hill, right? So he, he, you can't take every issue and make it the issue. Right. So Jesus you know, grew up and lived and ministered in an oppressive Roman system against the Jewish people. But primarily his message was, I'm gonna inaugurate a different kingdom and it's gonna be a kingdom of love and it's not gonna be about power and even your rights, it's gonna be a subversive kingdom. And so in order to get his kingdom forward, he had to choose which battles to fight. Mm-hmm. And I think now it's like, we do want to die on every hill. We want to fight every battle and we want to engage, engage, engage. And what happens ultimately is followers of Jesus. And this is the tension that I'm, I'm just going to, we struggle with is to make the kingdom of God and prioritizing what it means to live in that kingdom and holding the other things somewhat loosely. Mm-hmm. Like we can debate them. They're important, mm-hmm. but not everything can be the main thing. Right. And so whenever you take every issue and you make it the main thing, the main things actually lose their value. Right. They stop becoming the main things. Actually, you lose your voice. Right. Because now you're outraged. You want to cancel everybody. It's amazing to me in the cancel culture. I mean, you, you've, got, you've got people going back. I, I know this happened in the sports world the other day. You know, a couple pitchers in Major League Baseball, they literally go back and find, out, find tweets that they tweeted out when they were 17 and 18 years old. And right. then they're trying to cancel them for them. Right. I'm like. Hey, you go tell me what you said mm-hmm. at 17. <laughs> I, I heard a really great, great quote yesterday. I would rather be a hypocrite than remain the same person forever. And that is what we has been led to is that people are like, well, you're a hypocrite because you said this. Well, of course I did. I was a different person yesterday than I am today, let alone years ago, because we are all on a journey. We are all moving towards the kingdom of God or towards something. We're all should be growing. We all should be becoming. Who are we becoming? Are we becoming people of Christ? Are we, are we becoming people of, are we just becoming Americans? What is America becoming? It doesn't seem like America is becoming the place where I want to live. So why do I want to follow in lockstep what, where America is going? Yeah. But more so, what are you, we becoming? What am I becoming? And to bring it back to the most important thing of just that scripture, Jesus says to love your God with all of your heart and to love God with all of your mind and love God with all of your soul, and love God with all of your strength. Why do you think that had to be separated? Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's a good question. I mean, that love is is fully encompassing. It, it's the it's the fulfillment and the totality of what God God calls us to, mentally, spiritually, emotionally. You know, it becomes the lens for all of life mm-hmm. to be loved and to give love. 
right? Now that, that in itself, we could stop when we realize most people don't even get that. Mm -hmm. So first and foremost, to be loved by God, to find our identity in him, to be spiritually formed, to spend time in contemplation and solitude. And then out of that, the way that we think, the way that we act, the way that we live, the way that we respond, everything changes. Mm -hmm. But again, you can't give what you don't get. Right. And so I think, why does Jesus prioritize those things in the fulfillment of the law? Because he knows without the first, you can't do the second. Mm -hmm. uh, why does Jesus constantly throughout scripture retreat and get away? He knows he can't fulfill his purposes without time with the father. That alone may be the single greatest struggle of the Christian in 2020 in the 21st century is the inability to disengage in order to engage. You cannot engage every day unless you disengage to be replenished and refilled. Or what happens is your love comes out sideways. Hmm. It's misplaced. It's misguided. It's really anger. It's manipulation, mm -hmm. which what happens a lot of time. It's really, I just want to win instead of when I want to love. And I'm just telling you that the Christian of the 21st century in 2020 who will live and love well will have rhythms of retreat. Right. And will not look like the culture at large. I mean, it's impossible to look like our culture and to remain that person. Because if you remain in the cultural norms, then the cultural norm is to call out people for every single thing that is deemed imperfect. And the implication of you saying that they are imperfect is implying that you are perfect. Right. It just, it's so baffling. Yeah. And especially, it, it, especially as Christians, just because do we not remember the scripture of Jesus talking to the Pharisees and saying, before you point out the speck in your brother's eye, pull out the plank in your own. Until we can truly sit in contemplation and sit in prayer and look at ourselves, you know, take a look at yourself and make a change. And I'd like to read this quote from Thomas Merton to illustrate that. He says, you cannot be a person of faith unless you know how to doubt. You cannot, you cannot believe in God unless you are capable of questioning the authority of prejudice, even though that prejudice may seem to be religious. Faith is not blind conformity to a prejudice or a prejudgment. It is a decision, a judgment that is fully and deliberately taken in light of the truth that cannot be proven. It is merely the acceptance of a decision that has been made by somebody else. Hmm. And the acceptance of a decision that is made by somebody else is what we are all doing. Right. We are all following our tribe mentality that my tribe as a Christian is in line with my tribe as a Republican, because for some reason we have become Christian nationalist, where the nationalist agenda of the Republicans is now for some reason where a Christian has to lie because they hold one specific tenet of pro-life. And it's we now have the inability to say, well, we do believe in the life of an unborn child, but we also believe in the lives of all people. So I can't fall into a Republican political agenda and I can't fall into a Democrat political agenda because my faith is for love right, and for all people. Well, I, mean, I think what is all of this that you just kind of summarize? What is doubt? What does all this journey require? It requires what I would probably say is the single most lacking characteristic today uh, of Christ, humility. Yes. 
That, that is, in fact, it's so funny because in the first century, humility was not something to be desired. In fact, culturally, it was something that was despised because it was pride and it was power. And Jesus at Philippians 2 says, I didn't come to, to build my kingdom. No, I'm going to humble myself, become obedient to death, become a man. And today, without humility, you can't ever doubt, you can't go on this journey because humility has a foundational understanding that I'm not complete and I don't know everything and I'm finite and I have things to learn and I need you and I need to see your perspective and I've got to be open and willing to change. And those are things that we've eliminated. No, I will take the least amount of information and I will build my entire argument around it and then I will project it out to the world as fact. Mm-hmm. And anybody who chooses to question it or come against it, now you're my enemy and it's on. Just the lack of humility. And it starts from the very top of our country down. And, you know, we see no humility in, in the top level of leadership in our country. And you may be a supporter. That's great. But you can't deny that fact. Mm-hmm. You know, you just can't. And so it's just infiltrated now that, man, you want to look like Jesus? Walk in humility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hold things loosely. You know, it's okay to question things. In fact, I always say this, man, the road to r- true belief is paved with doubt. And yeah. If you don't go down that road, I don't know if you really ever, uh, your faith is ever really solid. Right. I believe that God exists. I believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and the way to bring the kingdom of God now, the way to eliminate, if not just dramatically reduce suffering in my lifetime by following the tenets of Jesus. But I don't know that. I can't know that. It's unknowable. It is a unknowable belief because I cannot prove to you or myself that God exists. I also can't prove that Jesus is the way because in order to prove that Jesus is the way, I, we have to all move forward in the way of Jesus, see if it works, all move forward in the way of Buddha, see if it works, all move forward in the way of Allah and see if that works. There's no way to actually know almost anything. You have to be willing to let go of the certainty of knowing, because ultimately the limits of knowledge do not stop at the limits of human understanding. We are, like you said, finite people. And if we believe that the limits of knowledge stop at our understanding, then our God is so small. He's only as big as my brain. Right. If I can't understand it, it doesn't exist. That it just doesn't work. So I am not certain that, that God exists, but I believe it. Again, I can't just go out in my daily operating life and tell people with absolute moral superiority and certainty that that is correct and they are absolutely wrong for doing what they're doing. Within that, just the humility. I I heard the Jesus prayer today of um, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And you can say that entire scripture or that prayer and leave off a sinner. Mm Mm-hmm. And it loses everything because we have to be humble enough to recognize that we are sinners. I am just as much a, just as much a contributor to the suffering of everyone as the people I hate. And if I continue to spew hate and moral superiority over people who are acting as sinners and forget to, or just be unwilling to recognize the sin in myself, then ultimately I am becoming exactly the person I hate. Absolutely. Yeah, that's why, I mean, to me, humility is that characteristic that really, it's the fruit of I've spent time at the foot of the cross. (laughs) I've spent time with Jesus because without that time at the feet of Jesus, humility cannot be manufactured. Right. It just, you you can't do it. 
Mm-hmm. It's not our natural response. It's not what we want to do. It's not what culture is, is giving us. And so, yeah, I mean, that to me is the probably characteristic right now that I think is most telling of the people of God and most lacking in our world. Mm-hmm. And in, in, a, in, a, in a world that wants to be right and wants to be affirmed in everything that I say and do, but nobody wants to, to humble themselves. Yeah. I mean, if you walk in my bathroom, I have an iconic picture on, on my wall of the two guys on the road to Emmaus. And it's, you know, my top three story in scripture because they're walking away from faith. They're walking away from belief. They're disappointed because Jesus didn't show up like they thought he was going to. He didn't establish his kingdom and now he's dead. And Jesus walks up on that road and walks with them. And he doesn't even reveal himself. He just walks with them as they talk. Mm-hmm. And then it's not till they get in the room and they're breaking the bread where their eyes are open to see who it really is. And I love it because we're so scared of the doubt. We're so fearful that our, our you know, faith isn't perfect. And yet Jesus says it's part of the journey. Mm-hmm. It's like you've got to walk down the road of Emmaus before you can go to Jerusalem and really believe. And uh, I think that's true of us. You know, I think that's true of around, uh, around us and, and in our lives. Yeah. A quote that I absolutely love about certainty and that points out the problem with cancel culture is a uh, a quote from Sister Macrina Weidenker. She's a Benedictine monastic. Um, she actually just died a couple months ago. She said, the things that I used to be certain of, I'm no longer certain of. The things that I used to be certain of that I am still certain of, I'm no longer certain of in the way I used to be certain of those things. And I'm fairly certain that this is going to continue. Hmm. And I believe that that illustrates wisdom. Right. So within this cancel culture that has infiltrated all of the world and especially all of, all, all of America is this moral superiority complex that we believe that everybody should be perfect at every moment of their life and should never contradict themselves, should always hold the in vogue opinions of the time. And if you happen to have an opinion that was in vogue yesterday, but is now no longer in vogue, then now you are wrong and should be canceled. What are some Jesus principles and then just logical principles of why that is just silly? I think there's at times you can actually look at this cancel culture, call out cultural uh, culture of outrage, you know, name several things. And you can actually see like, hey, there's some good things. Like it, it held people accountable that needed to be held accountable. I, mm-hmm. I think of the Me Too movement was mm-hmm. like it gave people a voice to say, hey, there's some things happening and it's been happening systematically and leaders that need to be held accountable. And you saw those individuals and Hollywood stars held accountable. And then it also leads us to the place where we wanna call out and destroy every single person Mm -hmm. that disagrees or that we have issue with or has done something. Mm -hmm. And I think there is some of this that is absolutely contrary to the heart of the gospel because the heart of the gospel is about redemption. That is the story of God. So the story of God from Genesis 3 is that everything fell apart and God is trying to redeem and restore what is broken, which includes us and all of creation. And the opposite of redemption is retribution. Right. Yeah, which is what really the cancel culture, I think, wants. Now, we don't, we don't want to just cancel. We want to destroy you. And I think we do it now with like very limited information. I, I, this is a stupid example, but a couple of years ago, there was Hurricane Harvey flooded Houston and Joel Osteen's church. They didn't open their doors. Mm. And I mean, largest church in, in the country, Joel Osteen, word of faith. I mean, he's a target. And I don't know of a Christian that hasn't taken a shot at one point, me included. <laughs> and they don't open their doors. And so people just absolutely losing their mind. And he is just raked through the coals. And then they come out later to realize, 
oh, they've set up, they're actually feeding thousands of people uh, already that the the, mm-hmm. the church had flooded, so they weren't allowed to be. So all of the truth comes out, but the right. truth is not nearly as as fun to talk about as right. the front of the story. Because the the first lie is often more important than the truth. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're doing this podcast right now, like a hundred feet from where Trump's rally was. Yes. And you know, the misinformation that came out that, oh, there were so many people trying to get in the building and they mm-hmm. weren't allowed. I mean, was just absolutely false. Yeah. And anybody in Tulsa and the police department, and the mayor are like, no, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, that's what we do with limited or even misinformation. We uh, make assumptions, we fill in the blanks, we you know, we go in people's past and don't see that this is a progressive process of growth and possibly they could have changed their perspective. No, mm-hmm. you said this at one time and therefore. Mm-hmm. And I just think, man, the gospel and gospel people is all about, can God redeem this? Is there a place for growth and change and repentance instead of destroying? Uh, I've seen, this is again, another example that just happened to be in my head is a couple of years ago, there was a racial incident at the University of Oklahoma and I'm from Norman, Oklahoma. So I remember it. And I remember the young man who did this, his life was destroyed. He had death threats. He had to move. They said that he said that he's not sure if his life will ever be the same. And I remember him talking and thinking, he's like, I'm genuinely sorry for what I did. And I wish I could go back and change it. And I'm like, man, I think we have an opportunity to actually see change, but we destroyed him. Right. To the point where he may never be the same. When I think what if we could have done as, as again, as people of the gospel, I think, man, I think there was an opportunity here for him to now be a spokesman mm-hmm. against racial injustice. Right. But we missed our opportunity. You have to make mistakes in order to be redeemed, in order to show other people that redemption is possible. Yeah. And if redemption is not possible, then what hope do we have for the future of the world? What hope do we have in the future of the kingdom oh, to come? Oh, you and I are screwed. Absolutely. I mean, in our personal lives and much less the world around us. And and I I think fundamentally, you have to ask yourself the question, would I rather be right about a topic or would I rather see somebody redeemed and restored? Mm -hmm. What is the win? Right. Well, in the kingdom of God, it's not about being right. Mm -hmm. It's about being redeemed and restored. It's about taking broken pieces of our lives and those around us and seeing them put back together. And it's amazing because we love the comeback story and we love the story of redemption, but we don't we're not living that out. Mm-hmm. You know, we would rather destroy you than to see you come back because I would rather be right uh, than loving. Yeah, I read this really amazing quote from a young woman named uh, Aishat Akabi. She says, some will say that cancel culture doesn't exist, and I agree. It doesn't exist for the vast majority of celebrities, the rich, and those you start online campaigns to take down. But it does exist for those like you and me, small businesses, those without power or adoring and sometimes mindless fans. It's the freelancers, those on the same political side, the well-meaning who aren't up to date with whatever we've just learnt is offensive, those who made silly mistakes in a desperate attempt to belong according to the cultural norms of the time, the person who tries to impress via tasteless jokes, even teenagers. These are the people we successfully define by a regrettable action. Cancel culture is just a popular name for cruelty culture, for purity culture, for moral superiority culture, one-upmanship culture, my beliefs outweigh my actions culture, identity as commodity culture, undermine my goals for likes culture, I don't understand, therefore it is wrong culture, act like I've always known what I do now culture, and I'm the only one with the ability to change culture. 
I mean, I get it. The world is messy, people even messier, and it would be nice if we could extinguish all who make it harder, but we would find that we would have to get rid of ourselves in the process. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, how, how lonely would that become? Mm-hmm. It, 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 it is remarkable, and there's so many influential things. I mean, we're, we're narcissists at our core. You know, the polarization of our world, the advancement of technology, all of these things, the lack of the actual loneliness, like we're more connected, but we're more lonely. Mm -hmm. And so all of these things play a role into what we feel like we need to project. I I see this, you know, even just the people around me, it's almost like they're, they're, they're searching for this sense of meaning and I'm going to find it by being right Mm -hmm. and being an advocate and being a social justice warrior. But it's, it's, it's so many times it comes out sideways. It's got this veneer of um, godliness and gospel centeredness, but it's lacking true love. And so I always remember people saying pain that is not transformed is transferred. And so people's pain, if it's not transformed by God in your life, it will be transferred in all that you do, even if what you're doing seems good. Yeah. Right. So I want to take a stand against racial injustice, but the pain that I've experienced in my life is going to come out in uh, you because you're a racist. Mm -hmm. Right. Instead of how would Jesus approach this and love somebody to potential transformation? Most of the time, we don't give people an opportunity Mm -hmm. to change. No, we again, we would rather be right or be justified in what we're doing than really see somebody um, changed. Uh, say that quote again. Pain that is not transformed is transferred. Yeah, that's something to sit with. And and I see that right now. I mean, I as a pastor, <laughs> I'm used to people not being finished. You never see the finished. You always see the in process, just like myself. And so my expectations is that people in regards to even racial injustice and and their understanding of the kingdom aren't aren't going to be the finished product because I'm not either. Uh, and so it is a process, and you you grow with people. You give insight. But if, if you do it in a loving way, you actually get a voice and an opportunity to shape that. Whenever you come in anger or just trying to be right, now you no longer are an agent of change. You no longer have a voice. And honestly, the only thing you're causing them to do is to become more steeped in what they already believed. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's actually counter, counterproductive. Mm-hmm. We think that we're, we're creating change and often we're only adding to it. You know, even if we may be right, it's how we do it. Yeah. You know, I, I, I saw an something happened on social media today with a friend of mine. And honestly, his views were like, I just couldn't believe he said that. And they were so kind of naive and ignorant. And you can tell that he had not been listening to black voices in his life and not really had time to sit and listen. And he was throwing out just the Christian slogan and the Christian jargon of here's why all lives matter. And here's what they're really trying to do. And it it was just, it was the telltale sign of someone who had not listened, but had just been quick to speak, slow to listen. And my response on social media would have done nothing other than create more controversy and me losing my opportunity for relationship. And so my step was, hey, I want to I want to check in with him. How are you doing? And in conversation, man, here's what God's been doing in my life. Hey, I don't know if you saw this, but at City Church, we just had a conversation on race, justice, and the gospel where we sat down and we heard black people tell their story of the cumulative effect that this has had on them. And that is an opportunity now for transformation because it's it's truly love motivated and not like I'm trying to justify myself in this whole thing. No, it's not about me. It's not about being right. It's about what God could do in somebody. And so, man, you know, slow to speak, quick to listen, overflowing in humility. And God, what, is, what are you wanting to do in them? Not am I trying to find myself 
and justify myself. And there's a lot of people right now, their identity is in um, this justice, the social yeah. justice. They're yeah. trying to find themselves. Mm -hmm. What a horrible place to try to find yourself. Right. Um, because in the long run, you don't add to the transformation and the change. You, you actually uh, add to the problem. Right. And that's hard for people to see. Right. I think that the love coming out sideways, you said earlier, and the just everybody is in process, that if you are more worried about saying the right thing than becoming the right thing, then that is telling of your character. Yeah. And that is what you have to sit and think about in contemplation of, am I constantly thinking about saying the right thing or am I more constantly thinking about becoming the right thing? Yeah. And even when you study, when you look back in history, and we could use so many examples, but let's take Martin Luther King Jr. because he's maybe the most famous and someone everybody knows, absolutely undeniably taking a stand against injustice. But if you listen to his words and you watch his life, I just, it came from a deep well mm -hmm. of relationship with Jesus that he could speak in a way that says the gospel compels us into action and the love of Jesus compels us. And it didn't come across as just attacking mm -hmm. and, and sideways. And why is that? Why was he such an agent of transformation? Why do we now celebrate his life? Because I think there was this well of love. Right. You know, it wasn't just responding. It wasn't just angry. It wasn't his own pain that he was projecting on somebody else. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the only way we really, really see transformation. Yeah. I think we will continue to have this conversation um, on this podcast because we can start our day um, in humility and love and end our day in hate um, because it, we are imperfect humans that have to constantly, incessantly keep our mind on Christ or we will fall away. And so this conversation will continue. And I would I'd love to read a, another quote from Thomas Merton to end. And he's talking about the desert fathers um, who went out of society into the desert to escape and to sit in contemplation, to bring themselves back to humility. And he says, society was regarded by them as a shipwreck for which each single individual man had to swim for his life. These were men who believed that to let oneself drift along, passively accepting the tenets and values of what they knew as society, was purely and simply a disaster. They knew that they were helpless to do any good for others as long as they floundered about in the wreckage. But once they got a foothold on solid ground, things were different. Then they had not only the power, but even the obligation to pull the whole world to safety along with them. That is what we are supposed to do. Get away from the shipwreck of society. See how we can change ourselves so that we can turn around and pull the whole world with us. Yes, absolutely. I, I've I've been on this train like the last six to nine months. If you've been around our church, you've heard me say this. That again, the, the, the follower of Jesus in the day that we're living will either learn to develop rhythms of renewal in their daily, weekly, monthly life, or they will fall by the wayside and they will get sucked in um, to the division and the fray and all the disagreement. And we cannot live and walk in humility and love unless we sit at the feet of Jesus. It's why Jesus looked over at Martha and he says, Martha, what you're doing is great. You just missed it because Mary is sitting here and you're working. But if you would come and sit here, guess what? It changes everything about what you go and do. And there's a principle of that. Not only did he speak it, but he lived it knowing that, man, if I don't retreat over here, 
even though all this ministry I have to do in three years of coming to teach and redeem and, and do everything. But if I don't do this, I can't do that. I hope if, if maybe you take one thing away from this podcast today is we're all a little bit weary. And I think Jesus invites the weary to say the burden of transformation and change is not upon your shoulders. It's on mine. I've not called you to go and change something you can't change. You are simply a part of this story. And the way that you play your part is that you come and you renew your spirit and your heart. And then I can use that in small or big ways to go and do something. And I think that invitation. Yeah. We're going to end the conversation there, but I would love to end the podcast uh, with a short contemplative prayer. As I begin this, um, just take deep breaths with each statement and kind of repeat it in your mind with the breath and breathe it in. And we'll begin with a deep breath. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am. Be still and know. Be still. Be.